please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Our sermon text this morning is Mark 1, 21 to 39. Let me read that text for us and I'll pray once more. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 39. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Please join me one more time in prayer. God, we need your help. Lord, you say that the unfolding of your word gives light. By your spirit, now give us light. Make us wise. Show us the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Help me as I preach. Help us as we listen. Lord, do us good this morning through your word, by your spirit, to the glory of your son. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, last week, we looked at Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. Uh, And in those verses, we saw that as Jesus was passing by the Sea of Galilee, he encountered two sets of brothers, Simon and Andrew, and then James and John. And in last week's passage, we saw that Jesus calls these four men to follow him, to leave their jobs as fishermen, to leave their families, and to spend their lives as Jesus' disciples. We saw that in the way that Mark tells that story last week, we saw that Mark is holding out these four men as exemplary. So in a sense, these four men are unique 
and that they're called to be Jesus' apostles, his inner circle while he conducts his ministry. But there's a sense in which we saw Jesus calls all people everywhere to follow him in a life of repentance from sin and faith in the good news that God's kingdom, God's saving reign is at hand through Jesus. You remember the point of last week's passage was that Mark thinks the good and wise and right and beneficial thing to do is to follow Jesus at any cost. If following Jesus means leaving your fishing nets, your stable income, your family, your livelihood, so be it. Following Jesus, we saw, is supremely important. Well, if you are not familiar with Christianity, if you were a first-time reader of the Gospel of Mark, the natural question in your mind would be something like this. Wait a second. Why should I do that? Why is following Jesus more important than having an income or living with my family? And put another way, and I think this is the angle through which Mark would have us view this text this morning, does Jesus really have authority to command me to follow him at any cost? Does Jesus really have authority that trumps the priority of my financial security? that trumps even my obligations to my family. Does Jesus have that authority? In our context, I know many of you have served in the United States military. You might say that Mark has confronted us with orders from Jesus. Remember, we saw that Jesus' preaching ministry was summed up in verses 14 and 15. Repent, believe, follow me. Well, if you're reading Mark's gospel for the first time, you're asking, wait a second, is Jesus truly up the chain of command? Are these binding orders? Does he really have the authority to command what he's commanding? Well, our passage this morning starts to demonstrate Mark's answer to that question. What we have in these verses, 21 to 39, is the record of a day in the life of Jesus. Let me ask at this point if I can have the AV team project the map that we've looked at the past few weeks. So this day in the life of Jesus that we get in these verses, it really breaks down into three scenes. So the first scene is in verses 21 to 28, uh, and those verses record Jesus teaching and casting out a demon in the synagogue in Capernaum. I don't know if you can see on the map, uh, the north side of the Sea of Galilee is the town of Capernaum. So Jesus has been passing by the Sea of Galilee where there was a lively fishing industry. He's seen Simon and Andrew and James and John. He's called them to follow him. And after some time, he enters into Capernaum. Uh, We'll see Jesus spend time in Capernaum twice more in Mark's gospel from other gospels. It seems that Capernaum became Jesus' sort of home base, that that was where he returned uh, when he he came back from preaching ministry elsewhere. Um, We're told that the events of verses 21 and 28, sorry, 21 through 28, happen on a Sabbath day in Capernaum. Then verses 29 to 34, the second scene record Jesus leaving the synagogue and entering Simon and Andrew's home on the same day, on the same Sabbath day. Jesus performs healing miracles. He becomes very famous. 
And then the third scene in this passage there in verses 35 to 38 uh, tells us about the wee hours of the very next morning, the morning after the Sabbath in which Jesus uh, escapes before the sun is up to go and pray in a desolate place. And then the very last verse of this passage, verse 39 says, and he went throughout all Galilee. So that sort of region uh, with the word Galilee on it, uh, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Thank you. You can take the, the map down. So that last verse seems to indicate that this 24-hour snapshot in the ministry of Jesus, it's a typical day in his ministry. That last verse seems to indicate the things that you've seen Jesus doing in this day, that's what he went all throughout Galilee doing, these types of things. So I wanna, what I want us to do this morning is to walk through this passage together uh, and as we do, I want us to note three features of Jesus' authority. Three features of Jesus' authority. We'll make some application of the passage along the way. Uh, and then as we close, I want us to look at those last few verses and draw two more specific applications. So three features of Jesus' authority. And then as we close, looking at the last few verses of the passage, two specific applications. So first, the first feature of Jesus' authority that we see there in verses 21 and 22 is that Jesus teaches with authority. Look again with me at verse 21. It says, and they, so this is Jesus, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching uh, the synagogue was the place where devout, devout Jews would gather for religious instruction. Uh, it would not have been unusual for synagogue leaders to invite visiting teachers uh, to come and teach to those present. So somehow, Jesus at this point is well known enough to receive an invitation from the synagogue leaders in Capernaum to do the teaching on this Sabbath. And so Jesus starts teaching well, we aren't told exactly what Jesus is teaching, but we're told how those who heard it respond there in verse 22. Verse 22 says, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Imagine you come home after church today and someone asks you, how was the sermon and you don't say, wow, it was, it was good or it was kind of a sleeper, right? You say, I was, I was shocked. I couldn't believe what he said. The magnitude of the authority that the preacher was claiming, I, I'm stunned. I couldn't believe it. That's the response that these original hearers have to Jesus' teaching. What does that mean that he taught as one with authority and not as the scribes? Well, Jesus lived in a day in which literacy was not widespread. So scribes, or people who were trained in the Old Testament scriptures and in reading and writing, which was rare, they were really powerful figures in Jesus' day. So scribes had specialized religious uh, and legal knowledge. One commentator says that scribes sort of combined the offices of Torah professor, teacher, and moralist, and civil lawyer. So the scribes were a big deal. They were important community teachers. But the authority of the scribes did not come from themselves. 
Right? The job of the scribes was to interpret the authoritative scriptures. Right? A good scribe was supposed to stand under the scriptures with you and help you understand and apply them. We'll actually see throughout Mark's gospel, most of the scribes in Jesus' day were not good scribes. Scribes get a bad rap in Mark. Well, Mark says that the teaching of Jesus, it has a different kind of authority than that of the scribes. I think this is what Mark is getting at. Think of the difference between the authority of a lawyer and the authority of a king. Right? The lawyer, he understands the laws better than you. And he can help you interpret them. A lawyer's words explain, and a lawyer is an authority insofar as he understands. But a king, at least in a traditional monarchy, he exercises authority over you by virtue of his words. Right? A king's words bind. The authority of a king comes from his own rulership. Remember, we saw in chapter 1, verse 15, that with the arrival of Jesus... Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. God is asserting his kingly authority to judge and to save through Jesus. It seems that those who heard Jesus teach, they perceived something of that authority in Jesus' teaching. And so the text says they were astonished. Brothers and sisters, by the way, the nature of Jesus' teaching is such that even today, Jesus continues to confront us with his authority through his words. When we open the Bible, we are coming face to face with the authority of the Jesus to whom this Bible speaks, with the authority of the Jesus who speaks in these scriptures. In the Bible, we're faced with Jesus' authority to tell us what's true and what's not. We are faced with Jesus' exclusive and exhaustive claim on our heart's worship, on what we do with our lives. Right? The, the authoritative word of Jesus, it's a word that invades our space. Right? It demands a response of submission or of rebellion. And brothers and sisters, it's worth asking, have we become deaf to the authority, even the astonishing authority that confronts us in God's word? Do we come to the Bible as to a word with authority? Do we come to the Bible willing to do what the God who speaks in the Bible requires of us? If we, if we read the Bible and we learn and learn and learn, but we never come away with the sense that the God who speaks in these scriptures is speaking to us about our lives and how we ought to live. We might be missing some steps. Now, to be sure, the Bible isn't first and foremost about us, and we need to exercise extreme care in how we understand and apply the Bible as a book that's first and foremost about Jesus and God's redemption through him. But if we never get around to the claim that the Bible makes on our lives, the authority that it asserts over us, there's something that we're missing. One more thing here to say about Jesus' authority to teach. So Christians, brothers and sisters, when you are fishing for men, when you are sharing the gospel, 
Sometimes it can be helpful to blame the authority of Jesus for what you believe. Just blame the authority of Jesus for what you believe. So when you're speaking about the gospel with an unbeliever, oftentimes, I'm sure, you'll find that your conversation partner will voice disagreement with something that you believe as a Christian. They'll sort of find a specific doctrine that Christians believe and they say, ah, yeah, I don't agree with that. I think that's wrong or crazy or even bad. Well, sometimes it can be helpful to speak to them about kind of the specific doctrine that, that they're talking about. Oftentimes, though, it can be helpful to blame Jesus for your faith in that doctrine in order to make the conversation about him. So I remember one time I was having a conversation with a professed atheist, and he was really attacking this idea of hell. He found it deeply offensive that anyone would believe in a God who sends people to hell. And I remember saying to this person, I say, you know, there are things in the Bible that we could talk about that help make sense of the doctrine of hell. I'm very willing to engage with you about that doctrine itself. But ultimately, the reason that I believe in hell is because Jesus Christ clearly and unequivocally taught that hell is real. And I am completely convinced that he is the son of God. He's in a position to know about it. So the, the real question that we need to grapple with is, who is this Jesus that we meet in the Bible? Because hell's not something that I came up with because it seemed good to me. What we need to do here is relocate the discussion to the authority of Jesus. Doesn't mean you can't talk about what they want to talk about, but it's helpful to get down deeper. I've been in conversations before about sexual ethics with unbelievers. You know, I can't believe that you believe that about sex or sexuality. At times, it's helpful to say things like, look, if, if this is just a matter of sort of your opinion versus my opinion, my opinion's probably not worth very much. Like, I don't want to trouble you with my opinion. But actually, the reason I believe the things that I do is because I'm convinced that the God who created the world, who created sex, who created our bodies, that he has revealed himself and his will to us through Jesus and that Jesus has stamped his authority on his Bible, on the Old Testament that he verified when he was on earth, and on the message that his apostles would pen after his life and ministry. And Jesus very clearly sees this as God's word. So I'm happy to talk to you about the details of the Bible's teaching on sex. I don't want to refuse to talk to you about that, but I do want to point out the more fundamental issue here is the authority of Jesus. Who is he? And does he have the right to tell us what's right and wrong? Not just in the realm of our sexuality, but in every facet of our lives. When we're fishing for men, it can be helpful to blame the authority of Jesus. I use that word blame ironically. It's not something that Jesus is embarrassed about. Jesus is happy to shock people with the magnitude of his claim of authority. That's the first feature of Jesus' authority that we need to see. Jesus has authority to teach. Now just imagine, before I moved on to my second point, that one of you in the congregation, one of the adults in the congregation, stands up and starts shrieking aggressively right in the middle of the service. Right? That would be disturbing and disruptive. In fact, please don't ever do that in any church at any time. But that's exactly what happens in the passage. 
Jesus is teaching until he is loudly interrupted there in verses 23 and 24. Look at those verses with me. Mark writes in, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. One of Mark's ways of describing a demon. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Okay, so what is going on there? There's a lot we could say. Uh, The point that Mark wants us to take away from this incident, our second point, is that Jesus has authority in the spiritual realm. Jesus has authority in the spiritual realm. So I've mentioned already this morning that uh, Mark 1, 14 and 15, which we looked at two weeks ago, that really gives us the heart of Jesus' preaching ministry. And remember, those verses say that the heart of Jesus' preaching ministry is that the kingdom of God is at hand. You might remember two weeks ago when we spoke about what that means. What does Jesus mean by the kingdom of God? Uh, We defined God's kingdom in two ways. So first, we said that God's kingdom is the realm in which God's rule brings blessing. In the Garden of Eden, where God reigns as king and Adam and Eve are his vice regents. And everything is very good. It's a picture of God's kingdom. Also at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21 and 22, where God is reigning, where his throne is in the midst of the new Jerusalem. That's God's kingdom where his reign is bringing blessing. God's kingdom is the realm in which his rule brings blessing. Remember, second, we said that the the kingdom of God is God's kingly self-assertion. It's God shown up in Jesus to assert his rights as king and to reestablish that realm. Aragorn, the return of the king. The king has shown up to assert his rights to save his people. That's the second sense of the kingdom of God. Well, what you find in this story of the Bible is that the original enemy of God's kingdom, the original enemy of God's good reign is a created spiritual being called Satan or the devil who is followed by a host of demons or evil spirits. Now, the Bible isn't really interested in answering every question that we have about Satan and demons. But the Bible is very clear. Satan is for real. He was created good by God. Somehow he rebelled against God. And a whole host of other spiritual beings followed him in rebellion against God's reign. Through tempting mankind, Satan has plunged our world into darkness and destruction Satan and his demons, the Bible reveals, they spend their existence tempting and afflicting God's image bearers. They spend their lives opposing the kingship of God. So the Bible doesn't always spell out exactly how Satan does all these things, but let me just very briefly give you seven things the Bible says that Satan and his demons do. So first, The Bible calls Satan the one who has the power of death because it's through the temptation of Satan that death was unleashed on mankind when Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Number two, we see in the book of Job that Satan and his demons love to afflict the people of God. Satan loves to cause believers to suffer and unbelievers to suffer, by the way. 
Number three, in the book of James, we see that Satan and his demons continue to tempt people to sin. James says, wherever there's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, there are demonic fingerprints there. Number four, in some of Jesus' parables here in Mark, we'll see later that Satan blinds people's eyes to spiritual reality. Satan, we're not told exactly how, keeps people from realizing that this message of the gospel is true. Number five, in the book of Revelation, we see Satan misleads people into false worship. He even promotes false doctrine in God's church. Number six, we see that Satan is behind the persecution of God's people. And number seven, this is actually kind of a rare instance of what Satan does, We see that Satan and his demons sometimes possess or inhabit people. They come and somehow take up residence in the bodies of humans and exercise a terrible control over them. That sort of seventh thing is what we have in this passage. So this demon, this unclean spirit, has taken up residence in this man's body and is exercising a terrible controlling influence on him. Just notice, by the way, Mark does not think that this man has schizophrenia, right? Mark is not giving us a pre-modern diagnosis of mental illness, right? People will say, oh, you know, they just didn't understand psychology. So when people were doing funky things or deranged in their minds, people would blame it on demons. That's not at all what's going on. That's clear from what this demon-possessed man says, Right? He says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This man is not psychologically deranged so that he doesn't see reality. In a sense, this demon sees reality more clearly than anyone else in the synagogue because he knows who Jesus is. Do you notice the demon speaks in the plural? He says, have you come to destroy us? Who's us? Uh, Later in Mark's gospel, we'll meet a man who is possessed by multiple demons. In fact, by a whole legion of demons. That doesn't seem to be what's going on here. The text suggests there's really only one demon involved. Uh, But instead, it seems that this demon knows that Jesus' presence is a threat to his whole team. The demon knows that the arrival of Jesus means that the king has come to roll back the tyranny of Satan. The kingdom of God is at hand, and the king has come to restore the blessing of God's reign. And so Satan and his minions know their days are numbered. And Mark's clear point in these verses is that Jesus has authority in the spiritual realm. King Jesus versus a superpowered, mind-controlling demon. It's barely even a fight. The demon-possessed man shouts Jesus' name. He says, I know who you are. In those days, uh, it was believed that in a spiritual conflict, if one party used the name of the other, that sort of gave that, that party an upper hand in the conflict. And Jesus is like, yeah, nice try. Verse 25 and 26 But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, Mark says, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Right, this spiritual being, so powerful that it can control a human victim, 
it does exactly what Jesus tells it to do immediately. Jesus has authority in the spiritual realm. So by the way, if you have troubles that stem from the oppression of Satan, if you're troubled by death and misery and temptation and spiritual blindness and the lies that Satan heaps on people, Jesus is the one that you need. Mark's going to continue to develop that theme for us. Lord willing, we'll think more about that when we come to chapter 5. For our present purposes, it's important to note, those who are present connect Jesus' spiritual authority with his teaching authority. Look at verse 27. It says, and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority, right? We expect them to say, wow, that was impressive. This guy's got spiritual power. But they connect his spiritual authority to his teaching authority, right? Do you see the logic that Mark is showing us here? Right? Jesus is asserting remarkable authority in the way that he teaches, well, you might respond, well, who is Jesus that I should listen to him, to his authority? Well, the next step in the logic is, well, this superpowered demon just saw in Jesus someone who was able to, quote, destroy us, and he responds by doing exactly what Jesus says immediately as he says it. So maybe we should listen to this Jesus character. Unsurprisingly, verse 28 Uh, ends this episode this way. It says, and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Very soon word gets out about the power and authority of Jesus. He's about to get very popular. That leads us to the third facet of Jesus' authority that we see in this passage. We've seen Jesus' authority to teach. We've seen his authority in the spiritual realm Third and finally, this passage shows us that Jesus has authority to restore. Authority to restore. Mark is about to show us that the authority and power of Jesus includes the authority to restore all that sin and Satan have broken in God's world. Look there at verses 29 to 31. They say, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. From that word Mark uses, we don't know whether that's a terribly serious illness or a fairly mild one, could be either. And immediately the text says, they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her. And she began to serve So this is the first of Jesus' healing miracles that we have in Mark. Jesus performs lots of miracles in all four Gospels. I remember when the first time this dawned on me. None of Jesus' miracles are party tricks. None of them are him just flexing divine power to impress. None of them are stunts to show off how strong Jesus is. The miracles of Jesus are foretastes and signs of what Jesus came to do. They are previews of the kind of kingdom that he came to bring. This miracle of Jesus, it reveals to us what kind of king he is. So here Jesus is showing us that he's come to fix what's wrong. 
with God's world. He's come to heal, to restore, to raise up, to relieve the suffering of his people. By the way, Christian, what a beautiful picture of the Christian life we have in this healing. Right? Isn't that your story? I was not well. I was afflicted and I couldn't help myself. But Jesus came and he took me by the hand and he raised me up. Now I'm better and now I serve his people. That's the Christian life there in a nutshell. Remember all this is taking place on a Sabbath day. Mark says that's the day on which God's law required his people to rest. Well, technically the Sabbath would have run from sundown to sundown. So by the time the Sabbath is technically over at sundown, Jesus, as you'd expect, gets swarmed. Look there in verses 32 to 34. It says, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. God willing, we'll say more at a future time about why Jesus doesn't want these demons testifying to him. But friend, can you, can you see what Mark is showing us about why we should listen to Jesus? Can you see Mark's argument about why we should respond to his authority? Right? Not only is Jesus the powerful, holy one of God to whom we all owe allegiance King Jesus is on a mission of mercy. He has authority to restore. Right, friend, imagine you find yourself in a medical emergency, right? You can't breathe or you're bleeding out. And in rushes a qualified, concerned doctor to help you. And he starts telling you what to do in order to benefit from his medicine. Right? You're not going to say, whoa, doc, who made you king here, Right? Who gave you the right to tell me what to do? Or you might not say that because you can't breathe. But equally, you're not going to resist his authority because you understand that his authority is there to help you. Right? This is one of the many, many reasons to trust Jesus, that you want to be in his kingdom. Because Jesus didn't just come in order to improve the lives of a few first century Galileans, as wonderful as that is. Jesus' ministry in Galilee shows us that he has come to restore all that's wrong with our world. To fix all that sin and Satan have broken. Right? Jesus promises that one day when he returns, he will fully heal and restore all of those who have trusted in him, including their bodies. A friend, are you aware that your body is broken and dying? However young or old you are, your body is broken and is dying. Listen, this is the, one of the wonderful things about following Jesus. When Jesus returns, those who belong to him, those who have trusted in him, for them, there will be no more fevers. There will be no more respiratory infections, no more heart failure, no more chronic fatigue, no more depression, no more cancer, no more sickness, no more death. And the reason that is, is because the one who heals broken bodies 
throughout the Gospel of Mark, has his body broken when he dies as a substitute for sinners and rebels against his authority. See, when when sinners suffer in this life, the Bible doesn't teach that there's a one-to-one correspondence between our particular sin and our particular suffering. But there's a sense in which when sinners suffer in this life, we're getting what we deserve because we've rejected and therefore forfeited the blessed realm of God's rule. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to solve the problem more fundamental than our fevers. He came to die to pay for our sins against a holy God. Three days after he died, God raised him from the dead, and now he's alive and he promises eternal life and forgiveness to everyone who trusts in him. Friend, can you feel the force of Mark's argument? Why should I follow Jesus? It's because having this king, being in his kingdom, is worth more than anything. It's worth more than your job. It's worth more than your family. Can you see Mark's logic that these four fishermen who left everything to follow Jesus, they did the sensible thing. They got the better end of the deal in leaving all to follow Jesus. It's true. We should follow this king because of the rightfulness of his authority. Friend, don't you want to follow this king? Can't you see there's no better place to be than under his good authority, the authority that saves and restores. Jesus has authority to teach. Jesus has authority in the spiritual realm. Jesus has authority to restore. In our final few minutes here, I just want us to look at the few remaining verses in this passage. I want us to make two applications in closing. Look with me at these final verses, 35 to 39. Look at how Jesus concludes this 24-hour period It says, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and casting out demons. We've seen Jesus display remarkable authority in this passage. And what we find here at the conclusion of the passage is that with respect to his human nature, Jesus is under the authority of his Father. Jesus is locked onto the mission for which his Father sent him. That seems to be what Jesus means when he says, that is why I came out. Not just that's why I spent the day in Capernaum, but that's why I came from the Father to accomplish the work that he gave me. Jesus is surging in the poles in Capernaum. Everyone is looking for you, but he's not driven by what people want or what other people think. When he's wanted for ministry, Jesus is sneaking out early to pray. When the town wants him to stick around, Jesus is focused on getting the gospel out, spreading the message of his preaching to other towns. In a sense, we see yet another exercise of Jesus' authority in these verses, right? Simon and Andrew and James and John, they don't take a vote on whether to stay in Capernaum, right? Jesus sets the mission. He says, nope, we're going on. 
Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. He's the Messiah. And in his humanity, he models for us how authority ought to be used, not selfishly, not self-promotingly, but in submission to God's authority. And two, two applications from these verses in closing. First one is briefly here. If you have authority, do you use it for God's purposes or for your own? If you have authority as a parent or a boss or a pastor or a leader or a husband, is your authority about making decisions that keep you popular? Is your authority about a power trip or how it makes you feel to be in charge? Or do you exercise authority for the purpose for which God gave it, specifically to bless and serve other people, to glorify his name? Friends, how do we use the authority that's been given to us? The second application here, brothers and sisters, in this picture of Jesus in his authority, I think we have a strong encouragement to imitate Jesus in prioritizing regular prayer. Many Christians have found that there's something about the early morning when Jesus goes out to pray that can be an especially suitable time to pray. I don't think scripture makes that a law, but many believers have found that helpful to pray in the morning. Whenever it is that we pray, everything we see in this passage about Jesus' authority, it urges us to prioritize prayer Because what we see in this passage is that Jesus' help is the help that we need. All right, friend, do you need help resisting temptation from the devil? Well, you need the help of Jesus' authority. Is there any kind of sickness or suffering or brokenness that you want strength to endure or that you want to see restored? Well, then you need the help of Jesus' authority. Are there there loved ones whose spiritual blindness you long to see taken away? Then, friend, you need the help of Jesus' authority. Do you need power and wisdom to accomplish the work that God's given you to do? Well, you need the help of Jesus' authority. Do you want to see the message of the gospel spread? Friend, you need the help of Jesus' authority. Brothers and sisters, if if there was anyone who, so to speak, did not need to pray, if anyone's relationship with God was going to be okay without extended time in prayer, if anyone had what it takes to do ministry without prayer, it would have been Jesus. But here we see King Jesus modeling for his people the needfulness of dependence on their father and beyond that, the priority of communion with him. I was recently speaking with a group of ministers. Uh, Some of us had read a book together about prayer. Uh, In our discussion, one of the other pastors, he put the, the heart of the matter really simply. He said, you know, it seems like what it comes down to is that if you believe that God is the one with the ability to what make, to make what needs to happen, happen, then you'll pray. But if you don't, you'll just be busy because you think you can But friends, if we realize that Jesus is the one with authority, that he is the one with the power to accomplish anything that's ultimately worthwhile, we'll see it as our privilege 
to bring our needs, to bring our requests to him in his merciful authority. We'll find that he is willing to help, willing to save. Saints, let's pray now for God's help to follow the Christ we've seen in the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this picture of the Lord Jesus that we have in the Gospel of Mark. Thank you for how you reveal his authority, Lord, to teach, to bind, and repulse Satan, to restore what's broken. Thank you that he came to use his authority in mercy. Lord, I pray that we would rejoice in the goodness of our king's reign. Lord, that we would be delighted to be those under such good authority. Lord, would you make us those who imitate the Lord Jesus in devoting ourselves to prayer, who are are conscious of our dependence on you, Lord, to accomplish anything worthwhile, anything lasting. Lord, would you make us like the Lord Jesus in our use of authority? Lord, would we, in seeing his goodness, his love, his focus on your glory, would be made like him in how we use what you've given to us. Lord, produce these things in us, we pray, for your glory, for our joy. Through Jesus Christ, amen.